If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We'll be in verses 31 through 40 this morning. Today, we're continuing our series in the uh, book of Exodus, a little mini-series that we've called Tabernacle. And we'll be considering the golden lampstand and its significance. Now, as you turn in your Bibles this morning, I'm going to tip my hand as to where we'll be heading today. It will come as no surprise to you that we're talking about a golden lampstand, that the theme of light, the theme of illuminating the darkness will come up. So I thought I'd introduce the message today with a bit of a personal anecdote, a story. Three years ago, uh, when we moved here, we found to be quite transparent, uh, Southern Maryland seemed dark. It just seemed dark. Uh, having never grown up anywhere north of Florida, uh, we had no idea what the winter solstice could do. Uh, no clue that you could leave for work in the morning and it'd be dark and leave from work in the afternoon and evening and it's dark. I didn't know it was possible for it to be dark before 5 p.m. It's just mind-boggling to me. The darkness was literally everywhere. But perhaps more ominously than that, Uh, There was a sense of spiritual darkness here. The area from Florida from which we had come was by no means a bastion of morality or a fortress filled with Christians, but it seemed to me, at least relatively speaking, that the cultural vibe we left behind was less overtly dark, and the presence of believers shining their light into the darkness in our area of Florida was, at least by the percentages, more prominent. For the first time in my adult life, we weren't in the Bible Belt anymore. Combined with the physical darkness of long winter nights, there seemed to be a palpable difference. And as a result of those experiences, this biblical theme we're discussing this morning came to my mind, that Jesus is the light of the world. And the role that I would play as a believer and as a senior pastor of Leonardtown Baptist Church It took on a greater significance that the light would shine in the darkness. And of course, you know, the urgent need remains still three years later. Brothers and sisters, we must bring the light of Jesus Christ to our neighbors here in Southern Maryland. So let's do the work of considering the golden lampstand and its significance with that concept in our minds, with that goal as our end. So will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 25? And again, I'll read verses 31 to the end of the chapter. You are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece, its base and shaft, its ornamental cups and its buds and petals. Six branches are to extend from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from one side and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on one branch and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand shaft along with its buds and petals. For the six branches that extend from the lampstand, a bud must be under the first pair of branches from it, 
a bud under the second pair of branches from it, and a bud under the third pair of branches from it. Their buds and branches are to be of one piece. All of it is to be a single hammered piece of pure gold. Make its seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. Its snuffers and fire pans must be of pure gold. The lampstand with all these utensils is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. Be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of it, and you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we study this golden lampstand, the the instructions you gave to Moses on the mountain and the piece of furniture that would be in your tabernacle, that we would understand its significance and that we would remember you are the light of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as has been the pattern, we've briefly considered the physical features of each of the furnishings of the tabernacle first. So if you want to follow along in your outlines, that is the first point. Let's consider the physical features of the golden lampstand. And I know some of you will be severely disappointed this morning. I do not have a tape measure with me. There's no tape measure. And there's a good reason. Because right away, there's something different about this piece of furniture. And that is that we are not told its exact dimensions. It's more of a summary of its layout than it is given exact physical dimensions. Whatever its height may have been, some guesses say it was probably at least five feet tall, we do know what the weight of the lampstand was. It was made out of a talent of pure gold, which the CSB helpfully translates for us, telling us that is 75 pounds of pure gold. Now, I don't know if my math is all correct, but my guess is that to reproduce something like that today in today's dollars would cost something like $1.5 million, a golden lampstand. And that would have been just the materials. I say that because the labor involved would have been a highly skilled craftsmanship to hammer this whole thing out of one piece of gold. An amazing, beautiful lampstand it would have been. It's pure gold. It's ornate design in and of itself. Speak of the beauty and the glory of our God, like the choir just sang. We won't dwell too long on the details of the branches, but if you've ever seen a Jewish menorah, you have the basic concept down. It may not have looked exactly like what you see in usually the menorah with all the tops of the branches being of equal height. We don't really know what exactly the layout would have been. But it would have had three pairs of branches coming from the central trunk or central branch. So three pairs kind of coming off of it. Each branch had three golden decorations of almond buds, almond blossoms, and fruit. And the central shaft had four of those decorations, presumably three of those anchored at the places where the pairs of branches 
intersected with the central lampstand. And then there was one more decoration at the top in the center. Now, as one commentator describes it, each of these branches ended in a leafy base of a bud from which opened the petals of an almond flower, and into this receptacle was fixed a lamp holder or a cup. It is possible that the, the lamp itself would just be set in kind of the little bowl or cup at the top of each of the branches. Now, this bud and bloom motif was repeated along both the trunk and the shaft of the lampstand, as well as the six branches coming from it, four times on the trunk, three times on each branch. And once again, we can know the structure and the motifs of the lampstand from the description here. But in reality, the details were revealed exclusively to Moses, who would have verbally then passed on what he saw to the craftsman Bezalel. I say that based on verse 40, where the Lord tells him to be careful to make the lampstand according to the pattern he was shown on the mountain. Moses had been given the revelation of the heavenly vision of what to exactly pattern it off of. And that's what the author of Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, he is quoting Exodus twenty-five forty when he says, All these furnishings serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, and here's where he's quoting the writer of Hebrews from Exodus 25, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now this leads me into the second point of the outline today, which is the significance of the golden lampstand. This golden lampstand was patterned after a heavenly reality. And what I want to try and do today is work backward from the book of Revelation to establish what the heavenly reality is. I hope this is helpful for you. As I was studying and thinking of how to synthesize the message today in a way that would be understandable, this is the way my mind worked through things. The reason, okay, Jesus came. The reason Jesus was born of a virgin lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again, was to give eternal life to all who would believe in him so that our sin debt would be paid, it would be removed as far as the east is from the west, and he would make it possible for us to dwell eternally in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus came, that we would dwell eternally with God in his presence. And to me, that is exactly the point to which the tabernacle is pointing, that God and man could dwell together. And so I want us to go to that end goal, go right to Revelation where God and man dwell together and see what we see about the lamp. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, we are told, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the lamp or the light of heaven in which we dwell with God in his presence. So this is our kind of first point of the significance is light. When the priests would enter the holy place to trim the golden lampstand, That shining tree of lights 
was giving them a glimpse of the glorious destiny of the children of God. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ in faith will never go down to darkness and death, but will live forever in the light of his glorious presence. Until then, until the new heavens and the new earth, working our way backwards, he, Jesus, has left his church to be light in this dark world. Before the lamp and the lampstand become obsolete in eternity, they are very much necessary now. And so working backward in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, you would see that the seven churches to which John is writing are symbolized by seven golden lampstands. Jesus in chapter 2 of Revelation is the one who is himself walking among the seven golden lampstands, keeping them well trimmed and even threatening to remove the lampstand of one of the churches who would abandon their first love. So each church is a lampstand, shining the light of the glorious gospel into the darkness of the world, holding fast to our first love, staying true to the one who walks among us, among our golden lampstands, and keeps us, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. And so I can think of no better time, no better place to reemphasize our church's mission for tomorrow evening, appropriately named Light the Night. I planned to speak on Exodus 25, 31 through 40, like a year or more ago. And by God's grace, here we are on the eve of Hallow's Eve with a mission tomorrow to light the night and to share the glorious hope of the gospel with those who will come to our doorstep amidst the darkness surrounding us in our county. We have an opportunity to be the light of the world by sharing the light of Jesus Christ with our friends, our neighbors who will come to our doors looking for a treat. But far beyond a treat, we have the opportunity to shine the light of the gospel to them. Now, I know some of you will spend hundreds of dollars to put the gospel into a shoebox to send halfway around the world. And hear me very clearly, we should do that. Any opportunity to see one child hear the news of Jesus Christ is a great gospel opportunity We call them gospel sending units. Is that right? Gospel units to go across the world. But friends, we have an opportunity to share the gospel with a 50 cents bag of candy tomorrow night on our doorstep right here. So don't miss that opportunity. Be the light right here at home. Now, I know it's Pastor Allen's testimony to tell, but hundreds And perhaps thousands of lives have been impacted by the faithful pastoral ministry of Alan Acker. And those lives impacted can trace their spiritual roots back to the light of the gospel faithfully shared with a young boy by means of a tract one Halloween night. Go ask Pastor Alan about that story. And I pray that the Lord would do it again and again, 30, 60, and 100 fold through us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So again, we're working backwards. We've seen Jesus will replace the need for a lamp in eternity. Until then, the church, which is the body of Christ, is the lampstand, the light in this dark world. And Jesus says, we are the light of the world. But track with me here. We are only the light of the world because he gave us light. We are the light because he is the light. John eight twelve. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. As the Christmas hymn puts it, light and life to all he brings. The Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men is the life Christ gives. So then consider with me very briefly the life-giving symbolism of the golden lampstand. Life-giving symbolism in just the golden lampstand that we're studying. We know from the text today that the lampstand was fashioned in the shape of a tree. Its central shaft formed the trunk from which the branches spread that were covered with beautiful buds, blossoms, and fruit, which is significant. Philip Ryken points out that this botanical motif was not merely decorative, it was also symbolic. As the lampstand branched out, it was budding, blooming, and ripening with fruit all at the same time. In other words, the three stages in the, tr- the life cycle of that tree were occurring simultaneously. The tree-shaped lampstand thus gives echoes back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life, the life-giving power of the everlasting God. In him is life, we are told, and the life is the light of men. We, human beings, are designed to be eternally and perpetually sustained by the life and light of the one true and living God. Light and life are interconnected themes in the New Testament also. Light and life are symbolized in this golden lampstand. But just like light and life are interwoven themes, the flip side of that coin are the interwoven themes of darkness and death. Accompanying the darkness of tomorrow evening is the grim theme of death. If you don't believe me, just drive by your neighbor's yard. The so-called decorations of some houses include entire graveyards, ghastly figures that sensationalize wickedness, evil, but especially death. But just like we are people of light, we are to be people of life. Jesus is life. He is the life and the light of men. Christians of all people know what it was like to have been spiritually dead. It is no joking matter to us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Now, all analogies break down at some point, but in some ways, apart from the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, hang with me here, we are kind of like zombies. Have you ever thought of it that way? Oh, human beings, we walk around and we look alive and active, but we are spiritually dead without the grace of God and the life of Christ in us. We are, spiritually speaking, the walking dead, dead men walking. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day they eat of it, they shall surely die. Now, in, in the Hebrew, the original would sound more like, dying, you shall die. The day you eat of it, dying, you shall die. You see, although Adam and Eve did not die physically on the day they ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. And all of their descendants have been spiritually dead unless they were made alive by God's Spirit. In essence, we are all becoming what we already are. We enter life as a descendant of Adam and Eve, dead spiritually, and it is leading us to death physically. The Bible teaches us that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so we inherit this sin nature, as the Bible puts it, and then the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. Friends, if you are here today, and you have not repented of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. And the consequences of your sin will be both physical death and eternal damnation in hell. Death is not a fun plastic gravestone you buy at Walmart for your front lawn to laugh at with your neighbors over a beer while your kids eat candy. The writer of Hebrews says, Just as is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. The God who created you will judge you for what you did in this life. Whether or not your sins are paid for, either by his son and his death on the cross, or else they will be punished eternally. Now, thankfully, you're still here, physically alive, to hear the glorious hope of the gospel today. But hear me very clearly, none of us are promised tomorrow. James chapter 4 says, You do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while 
and then vanishes. So please allow me to share some good news with you today. Allow me to shine light of the gospel into the present distress you may be feeling under the weight of your own sin. Although you are a sinner who justly deserves God's punishment, he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And you can receive eternal life by placing your faith in Jesus Christ today. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed or has crossed over from death to life. The greatest news I could ever share with you is that Jesus has bridged the gap of sin that separates us from a holy God. Jesus has made it possible for a holy God and sinful man to dwell together. Which brings us full circle. Because the Old Testament tabernacle, with all of its furnishings, were God's way of dwelling with his people then but they were always intended to point us to God's way of dwelling with us eternally through the finished work of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so today I simply praise God that the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled in Jesus. It promised this with which I close. The people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Would you praise God for shining his light into your own heart and life this morning?